A word about this episode you're about to hear. It was very emotional to create and relive these days in December for me. I questioned whether it would be right to even include this episode in the show. Historically and sadly, these events did happen. I really wish they never did. While working on this episode, I kept thinking and hearing Ringo Starr's message, peace and love is the only way. So while you listen to this episode, hold on to peace and love, and be caring and kind to one another. Continuing from December 6th, at 5.45pm, Andy Peebles from the BBC Radio 1 arrives at the Hit Factory in New York to interview the Lennons. Here's Andy. Before we actually started the tapes rolling, John and I began to get quite engrossed in a conversation about his early recordings at the BBC. He seemed to enjoy remembering the names and the people who'd been involved in those early recording sessions. So, having done that, and having felt that the atmosphere was completely right to start recording, on went the red light. John and Yoko Lennon were both in exceptionally good form. We set the tapes in motion. We come along on Saturday morning, greeting everybody with a smile. (laughs) John and Yoko, it is more than wonderful to be able to talk to you after a very, very long time. We've been reminiscing just before the tape started rolling. Right. And John, you've been talking about Saturday Club, so the memory is still working. Oh, the memory is very, very good. It gets better when you get older, actually. It gets more clear. You remember those glorious days? Bernie Andrews, and uh, I was just saying, I heard some of the tracks. Somebody must have pirated them, Bernie, in America, you know. I've heard Saturday Club. We did a lot of tracks that were never recorded on record for Saturday Club. All the stuff we'd been doing at the Cabin or Hamburg and that. There was some good stuff then. They were well recorded too. But the interesting thing is... Three Cool Cats, I think we did. Did you? You've still got them in your collection? I think I picked up a uh, pirate record of it, but I'm not sure because I buy all the pirate records and file them away, don't play them, you know, keep them. And another thing... No, I don't. No. Anything but. In fact, I'm quite surprised that the man sounds very Liverpudlian, if I may say so. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, <laughs> what, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Yeah, okay, let me ask you. We're, John and I are getting into reminiscing there. How much does it's all fine. this mean to you? How much, how much have you learnt through your association with John about the days before you met? Well, part of it's gibberish, and uh, <laughs> the other part is fascinating, you know. Hmm. I've learnt a lot. Oh, no. Yeah, I've just about told her everything. In a decade, huh? Mm-hmm. A lot of history. Side by side. 
Hi to a grasshopper's the old phrase. We are knee-deep in the four Beatles once again this afternoon. Side Carl Denver Trio. We've all had a trouble and parted. We'll be the same as we started. We've traveled alone, seeking this country side by side. Oh, yeah. It still obviously means a lot to you. You've got a memory for all the names. As you sit here in New York, do you ever get the itch to think, oh, it'd be nice to go back and have a look? Oh, yeah, you know, but as I always say to any Englishman I meet, most English people I meet are ex-patriots, you know. I mean, as I, I was saying off stage before, I've been to Singapore, Hong Kong, Cape Town, Johannesburg, and all points east and Caribbean and uh, Pacific places where Somerset Morn and all those people that I like to read and read about where, and the famous place in Singapore, the Hotel Rattles or Ruffles or something, where they'd all be... Ruffles, yes. So, as, as Churchill said, it's the Englishman's inalienable right to live where the hell he likes. Mm. So, and as I say to an Englishman, I say, well, don't you get homesick and come back? I say, what do you think, it's going to vanish? It's not going to be there when I get back? Do you no, have but he's, he's very English at heart. And, I mean, just this morning, it was just a coincidence because we're meeting you now and, you know, this all very English thing. And he saw this Liverpool in this book and he started choking up, you know, really. Oh, Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> That's supposed to be tough, you know. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> the combination is very peculiar. Hmm. But the macho side and the, the other side. It's a it? traditional English thing from Drake or whatever on to go everywhere, you know. But I do find myself in English parts of the world, and it's very interesting. Do you have many English friends in New York at the moment, John? Uh, well, as the Moonlight on the Water song says, no friends and yet no enemies. I'm either working or family-oriented. I don't do a lot of... Socialising. Socialising with, mm. with people of any nationality. And offhand, I can't think of anybody. Counting out the money The king is in the kitchen Making bread and honey No friends and yet no enemies Absolutely free No rats about the magic ship A perfect harmony how exactly do you go about writing, John, these days, or, or both of you, in fact, as a combination? Which of those two is the more important? Looking back at it, whenever I comment about writing, I always seem to have been suffering, whether it was writing day in the life or whatever. It's some kind of suffering. So I always seem to have an intense time writing and thinking this is the end and nothing's coming and this is dumb and this is no good and all that business. So not writing for the five years, which I didn't, I didn't pick up a guitar or anything, and not trying to write, not making an attempt to write or anything like that. So what you said about Walls and Bridges applies to double fantasy. I was in Bermuda and Yoko was in New York doing some business. I was in Bermuda with Sean and the nanny and that kind of stuff. And then when we made a tentative decision to make a record, I didn't have any material, then suddenly it all came to me. All the songs that are on Double Fantasy all came within a period of three weeks.
But still, yeah, I think it's great. And you did reggae too, because you were saying that there are some stations here that actually play dub reggae. Oh, they play dub. Mm, In the last ten years, the, the, the thing I missed most about England was reggae. And in the last 10 years, uh, a lot of Caribbean people have come here from Haiti, from Jamaica, and all points down there, and they've created a whole community and a whole thing, and it's getting very hip, the reggae, different from England's reggae. There's more R&B in it over here. Down in Brooklyn, they're making it. And it's very interesting. They play the English reggae and the New York reggae and the Ireland reggae. There's all different styles. And the dub reggae, they even, even the DJs are on echo. Well, I'm money, come to on the echo. But listen to Paper Shoes, Yoko Ono, second album. We've been there and back, honey. And that's, that's but I still ten like years ago, to do straight rock and roll. I still yeah. losing you is a straight blues. Forget about the lyrics. I could be singing "My Mommy Done Gone." It's blues, straight. Starting over is straight pop rock, fifty style. What about the American music scene at the present moment? I found it a bit soft listening to the radio here, particularly well, the rock stations. They've gone top ten. FM was really, they played albums, but the financial and all the things that get involved, things can never be always the same. So they're going through a change now because the WNEW and WPLJ, the big white rock stations here, and they have started introducing a lot of what you call new wave. But before they did it, a new wave station opened, which just plays nothing but the clickety, 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 click, you know, whatever they call it, all the time. And, of course, New York being what it is, they know what's going on in London because people are going back and forth all the time. It was in the air all the time. It was being played in clubs. It was talked about, like, underground. You know, everything starts down there, and as soon as they make a hit record, whoever it is, everybody's going to say, this old out, this old out, and somebody else will come with a blue nose and a green ass, you know, and mm-hmm. that'll be the new thing. So it has to move up <coughs> and diffuse and become part of the scene. I did a TV show in 1973 with a guy called Tom Snyder, and he said, what music do you like? I said, disco and reggae. I should have invested in reggae because I never thought the Americans would get on. The Beatles made an attempt at scar. The solo on I Call Your Name was Scar, deliberate and conscious. Right. Yes. Mm, Uh, Ubla D was semi-semi, okay? So you can't teach an old dog new tricks. (laughs) And you're obviously mm. two very satisfied people on the strength of it. Yeah, we like doing it. That's the point, mm. isn't it? Uh, in oh, other words... I'm calling you. 
<laughs> one, one final question to you. What about your private life and your own sense of security these days? David Bowie, I think, has recently said, but the great thing about New York is that he can walk down the street and people, instead of rushing up and ripping his clothes off, will come up, or rather just walk past him and say, Hi, David, how are you? And he exactly. can say, I'm very well. Is it the same for John and Yoga? Yeah. That's what made me finally stay here. It wasn't a conscious decision. I just found that oh, I was going to movies, going to restaurants. And the five years, you think, you know, it was just baking bread and the baby. No, because I, I went to Hong Kong and walked around. And people cannot appreciate what it was. To, when I left England, I still couldn't go on the street. It was still Carnaby Street and all that stuff was going on. We couldn't walk around the block, couldn't go to a restaurant. Unless you wanted to go with the business of the star going to the restaurant garbage. I've been walking the streets for the last seven years. When we first moved here, we actually lived in the village, in Greenwich Village, which is a sort of artsy-fartsy section of town, for those who don't know, where all the students and the would-bees live, you know, and a few old poets and that. <laughs> you know, people who have lived there for years, you know, still live there. But I, she, that, we got into this before, we didn't finish it. She told me, yes, you can walk on the street, you know, she says, don't, you will be able to walk here, but I would be walking around tense like that, waiting for somebody to say something or jump on me and like that. And it took me two years to unwind, just to, I can go right out this door now and go in a restaurant. You want to know how great that is? Mm. Or go to the movies? I mean, people will come up and ask for autograph or say hi, but they won't bug you, you know? They just saw, oh, hey, how you doing? Like your record or whatever. You know, that because we got a record out now, but before they'd shout, how you doing? You know, how's the baby? Mm. Oh, great, thanks. How are mm. you? Talking about restaurants, huh? I'm, I'm starving. So what happened to the chicken yes. soup? <laughs> John and Yoko, on behalf of us, thank you very, very much. For a pleasure. A great pleasure to talk to you and the BBC and all the English and Scots and Welsh and Irish listening. And mm. Cheers. Hip, hip. The next day, Sunday, December 7th, John phoned his Aunt Mimi in Dorset and pledged to see her soon. And he was saying, um, hello, is that you, Gertie? <laughs> Never mind, Gertie. <laughs> I'll be seeing you soon, Mimi. I can't wait to see you. And you see, with him phoning for so long, uh, certainly once a week and sometimes twice a week, the phone is so clear. I didn't feel that he'd been away at all. It was as good as seeing him. Meanwhile, over at One Soho Square, London, Paul is recording and mixing tracks at his MPL basement studio.
Traveling 40 miles west of London to Paradise Road, Henley on the same day, December 7th, George is busy recording a track he wrote for the handmade film, Time Bandits.
The next day, December 8th, over in the UK, Paul McCartney continued to record and mix tracks at his Soho studio. recording in London in the afternoon, over in New York it's morning. And from the Lennon's Dakota apartment on Central Park West, John starts his day early around 7.30 a.m. He had breakfast at La Fortuna's on 71st Street before he head over to the local barber at 9 a.m. to get his hair cut in a 1950s style. John arrived back at the Dakota to meet with photographer Annie Leibowitz for a Rolling Stone magazine photo shoot. Lennon, running late from the photo shoot, joined Yoko for an interview with David Sholin, Ron Hummel, Bert Keen, and Laurie Kay for the RKO Radio Network. I was expecting to buzz me and she kept saying, one more, one more. I know how it is. Yes, we're on, we're on, dear. Well, um, I think... one and then the other? No, 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 because they were just waiting, oh, you know. I'm sorry, I was just so, up there and she'd um, say, well, you a I just put my jacket on to leave. And she said, can I have one with the jacket? Okay, I'll put the one with oh, the jacket. Oh, one with the jacket, yes, okay. Oh, hi, hello. Hi. Uh, you have to have hello. this on. What? What is it? Oh, it's a microphone. Okay, mm. let me get relaxed. Just like this, you know. Because I'll be too hot like that. Like the TV, right? Mm. Well, I was just sort of... Rabbiting. Rabbiting on, right. Hello, hello, testing, yeah, testing. Let me... Dave. Hello, Dave. John, pleasure. Yeah, I'm sure I've heard your voice. Which one is the talker, you? You're both the talker? Yeah. How are you? You're not John Paul, George, Ringo and Bert, are you? Not that Bert. It's the only Bert I know. Oh, I know the other Bert. Good night, Bert. Ernie, Ernie. Right. Okay, Bert. Mm. Ginger. Yeah, I bet, I bet. Well, look, I'm being a lot of Sesame Street, me and Sean, so I know all the characters, you know. It what was that ripping? It comes twice a day in L.A. It comes on at 9 in the morning, yep. and then at 5 in the afternoon they do a repeat of the same. Oh, well, we get it on Channel G at 7 till 8, from 9 till 10 on PBS, and then evening sometime or other. Okay. Here we are. Yeah. Whenever you're ready. Yeah. 
whatever. Mm, sorry to interrupt. Mm. You weren't interrupting, yes? A question to both of you. Um, what is a typical day? I think of the listeners would like to hear this one. What is a typical day in the life of you? Why don't you explain it? Well, uh, your side of it. Yeah, there's a sort of basic day. They vary slightly. If we're if we're making records and that, that's different. But without when we're not doing records and being up late, I get up about six, go to the kitchen, get a cup of coffee, cough a little, have a cigarette. Papers arrive at seven. Sean gets up seven twenty, twenty-five. I oversee his breakfast. Don't cook it anymore. Got fed up with that one. <laughs> but I make sure I know what he's eating. Yoko, if she's not really, really busy, sometimes I wake up and she's already down here in this office. But if it's not that kind of pressure going on, she might pass through the kitchen on the way to the office. Where I'm, whereas okay. I'll make her a cup of espresso to get her down in the elevator good. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then uh, I'll hang around there until about nine. Sean's sort of had his breakfast and him and his nanny Helen are deciding what to do for the day, you know, and I make sure he watches PBS and not the cartoons with the commercials. I don't mind cartoons, but I won't let him watch the commercials. So make sure he's, if he's going to watch something that morning, it's going to be Sesame Street. Then uh, the Sean and the nanny will go off somewhere and do something. And I'll go back to my room. It's the bedroom, but I do everything there. I mean, I have instruments and, you know, records and whatever I do, I always like do. I used to say, if you can't do it in bed, mm. you can't do it anyway. <laughs> I'm a bit like Hugh Hefner, you know, it's all like the bed is, controls the whole thing. <laughs> then if uh, I'll buzz down and see what, what Yoko's doing downstairs, because we have the intercom running between upstairs and downstairs. If the day's not too hectic, we can meet for lunch and go out to lunch. If not, I'll... If I haven't got anything outside of the house to do, I will go back in uh, at 12 to see that Sean gets a good lunch and be with him while he eats, even if I don't eat. And then it just goes on like that, and she's still in the office. And then after lunch, she usually goes and does something else with the nanny, you know, it, that presuming they've come in for lunch, generally they do. And then I will have that from maybe one till five, I'll take for myself to do whatever I want to do, stay in, go out, read, write, whatever. 5, 5.30, I start coming, looking around to see if Sean's got back again, you know, if he's back from wherever he's gone or it's getting time for dinner. 6, we eat dinner. Usually Yoko's still down in the office, so then we have dinner, 7 o'clock, bath. This is Sean, my life revolves around Sean. 7 o'clock, bath. Daddy goes in to watch Walter Cronkite. 7.30, there's usually some kid's stuff on, right? I let him watch commercial TV if I'm there, because when the commercials come off, I just flick my little switch which goes on to radio. So I don't mind if he watches them without hearing them, it's different. 7.30 till 8 he watches something, I take him to his bedroom, kiss him goodnight. The nanny probably reads him a story or whatever they get up to in there, and he's in bed by 8. Then I'll give a buzz downstairs, say, what the hell are you doing down there? You're still down there? If I'm lucky she'll come up, maybe we can do something. But some, she's a workaholic, so she's liable to, to go on until... Uh, She'll sometimes come back at ten, come back up at ten o'clock at night, and take two hours sort of rest, and then start work again at twelve midnight. Because she's always calling the West Coast or England or Tokyo or some godforsaken place that is on the different time zone from, and that's a regular day. Do you consider yourself a strict mother and father? Uh, that at least his moral code and what is right and wrong, and what you're. Well, you see, if I knew the secrets of what of what is right and wrong, 
Well, I wish we all knew the secrets. Nobody really knows. That's the point. Nobody really knows what's best for children or whatever. They're like guinea pigs that each generation experiments on. You know, I know if you go too far to the liberal side, they'll probably go up, grow up being disciplinarians. If you give them too much discipline, they'll end up the opposite. I'm trying to just have no real heavy discipline about behavior, only don't be impolite, don't hurt other people. And yes, you do have to clean your teeth after you've eaten. When you eat, you eat. <laughs> and that, then you play after, not both at the same time, and regular bedtime. The other thing that's very strange is probably Are we talking about child reading or records here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the funny thing is that there must be some sort of physical connection, and that's why, you know, I can relax about it. I don't feel that even when he's far away, um, far away, I mean, it's upstairs, but I'm here working. Um, that we're sort of connected and we know what we're doing because um, he buzzes he down gets, to the office all the time and he gets hurt or something and the other day I just suddenly woke up very early in the morning and I heard him cry but I mean I, it was just an instant after I woke up that he started crying mm -hmm. and I just rushed over and there was that sort of feeling like I already knew what was going to happen you know also, she never is, uh, however busy she is, she'll never stop him coming in. Even if she's in a really important business meeting. Even if he comes in, then she says, well, he sees that, you know, this would be boring if he walked in now. He'd like, check it out and maybe interrupt a little, but it would be boring for him. So he'd go away. But So he knows there's access there. So in that way, we're lucky that our, our work space is within the building. But that goes for any artist, rich or poor that they do tend to work in their own homes or lofts or apartments. So in that respect, I think a lot of people are doing, do what we do anyway. Because if you work in the apartment, you live in it, it's all the same place. It's not a place where daddy or mummy has to go across town or get a commute every day. So in that way, musicians and artists have the a benefit that maybe ordinary people couldn't get. Yoko was telling us about the emotional impact of hearing your songs to her for the first time. How did you feel hearing her material? It inspired me completely. I got, as soon as she would sing something to me or play the cassette down the phone, I would, within 10 or 15 minutes, whether I wanted to work or not, if you call it work, <laughs> I would suddenly get this song coming to me. You know, heard the album, when it was completed, after the first time you heard it, did you know that it was going to be accepted like that? No, we didn't know anything, did we? Really? You know, you go through two ways. Sometimes you think, wow, yeah, great. We, this is great. We've done it. And then the next time you hear it, well, she, she's not as, quite the same as that. I'll think, no, this is not right. It's not right. Yeah. So I would go yay and nay on it all the time. But I think, uh, basically, we thought, we if people it. will exactly listen to it for what it, it is <laughs> and not listen to it with preconceived ideas of how it ought to be or as compared to something else, then if people could listen to it just as if it wasn't even John and Yoko. Yoko, when you first heard Woman, did yes. that make you cry? Oh, yes, yes. I played that for, this is just, and I'll be real quick and then I'll shut up. I played that for my wife and I told her to pretend. She cried. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, trying to do for a lot. Group, it's really well, because that's who, what I am, you know, I'm 40, I want to talk to the people my age. I'm happy if the young people like it and I'm happy if the old people like it. I'm talking to guys and gals that, that have been through what we went through together, the 60s group that has survived. You went out on a limb with this, though. You took yeah. a lot of very personal love songs 
and laid them out for everybody. Mm. How, how does that feel to you? How do you feel about, after five years of silence, bearing yourselves to people in interviews and music? Because, you know, even as I put it in my last incarnation, everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. <laughs> it means really that, you know, one cannot be absolutely oneself in public because the fact that you're in public makes you, you have to have some kind of defense or whatever it is. But we always tried from, whether it's from Two Virgins through Imagine, through anything we've done together, the films we made together, always tried to get as near to the uncensored, as it were, for what we are, not to project an image of something that we're not. Because having been in that sort of pop business so long and tried to retain myself throughout it, but obviously not always being successful at that, it was most uncomfortable when I didn't feel I was being myself. But everything, every statement to come from the two of you has been taken as what, what are they doing? Whether it's, it's extremely radical or perceived as kooky or avant-garde, yeah. everything has this hard, tough, I want to get something across to you people. How do you feel? I mean, are you, are you trying to get something across or were you? It's to share it. It's sense. like, you know, when you've been somewhere beautiful like Bali and all your friends haven't been, and you want to say, my God, I was in Bali, man, and it's just the greatest place ever, and it's, re you know, and it's that, that's how, how we are about things. We get enthusiastic and excited. Want the same as when I, it sort of dawned on me that love was the answer when I was younger, on the Beatles' Rubber Soul album, the first expression of it was a song called The Word. The Word is Love. In the good and the bo bad books I have read, whatever, whatever, read The Word is Love, seemed like the underlying theme to the universe or to everything that was worthwhile got down to this love, love, love thing.
interview drew to a close with John and Yoko signing their album cover for the RKO staff. Where's she signed? I to don't who? see it. This to you? Please. Who's the poster for? Ron. Ron. Yeah. Oh, it's not. It's, I don't think ink is going to work. No, this is. Wait a minute, let's see if it's. Well, look, I don't. Maybe you're going to have to spray it or something. That, that's why they never make album covers that you can write on either. I'll go over it in ballpoint as well, and then between the two, you. you'll have the impression, and then you can... Yoko, I'm doing it here right now. Oh, I don't... Why won't it write? The Lennons were now scheduled for the recording studio at the record plant, but their limo driver called with a regrettable delay. Yes, do you have the car with you? Or you right? Get That's good. That's Some combination of that. Yoko? Yeah, that's always the hard thing about signing things, because they won't write on these things. Thank you, it says one a lot. Oh, it's a pleasure. I, you know, I, I, I'm a fan of people, too, you know. I like people to sign their books when they give them to me and all that. that was oh, yeah. To ensure that the couple got to the recording studio by 6 p.m., John asked if someone can drive them. RKO's Dave Sholin said that they can hitch a ride with him as his limo was taking him to JFK Airport for his flight back home. Meanwhile, happening in front of the Dakota on the New York City street, Beatles fan Paul Gorish hung out and waited for Lennon. On the street, Paul met another person who seemed just as eager to meet John. So he said, I'm waiting to get my album signed. So I said, fine. So he says to me, where are you from? So I said, I'm from New Jersey. He says, no. I said, where are you from? He says, I'm from Hawaii. I said, where are you staying? And with that, he like snapped back, why do you want to know? And I was taken aback because he's the one that came over and initiated the conversation. I didn't want to talk to this guy because I didn't want to talk to anybody. I wanted to keep John pretty much to myself. And I said to him, look, leave me alone then. I didn't ask you to come over here and talk to me. Is John coming out? <laughs> As the couple walked past the gate arch, John was approached by fans for an autograph. Lennon also spotted Beatles fan Paul Gorish standing with his camera. Yoko and Dave got into the limo while John spoke with Paul and signed one more autograph as Paul took a photo. John walks up to John and holds the album out. But do you want me to sign it? And John looks at me like, you know, there's something strange. And as he's signing the album, I took a picture of him and And after he signs the album, he then turns the album back to Chapman and raises his eyebrows and says, is that all right? And I took another picture with his eyebrows raised. Yeah. And says, yeah and steps back, like just back away. And John turned to me and looked at me like, you know, that's quite strange. As he was getting into the limousine, I took another picture of him. And John got into the limousine and he was sitting looking at me. And as the limousine was pulling away, he waved to me. And I waved back and, and, and that was the last time I ever saw him.
The Lennons arrived at the studio. John was excited to begin this evening's session, adding guitar work to Yoko's track Walking on Thin Ice.
Producer Jack Douglas. Uh, it was all set to be mastered the next morning. While we were working, David Geffen came up to the control room, and uh, and he came up and he said, "Well, congratulations, boys! Two weeks out, and your album is gold and quickly headed headed for platinum, and the single is going to number one." And John was just thrilled. I mean. He's been there many times before, but after five years, he uh, he just jumped up and down like a kid. At about 10.30 p.m., the Lennons decided to call it a night. Normally, the couple would stop off to get a bite to eat, but this evening they decided to go straight home and check in on Sean. They arrived back at the Dakota around 10.45 p.m. Good evening, Mr. Lennon. Beautiful night. It certainly is. Mr. Lennon. officer who drove her to the hospital was tell me he's alive tell me he's alive eyewitness news producer alan weiss was being treated for a motorcycle accident injury when john lennon was brought in police officer ran up to the doctor and said we have a gunshot hit in the chest doctor said when's it coming in it's in the door right now at that moment the door slammed open stretcher came wheeling in police officers six to eight police officers trotting alongside they pushed him right into the room that was right next to me. A number of doctors and nurses ran inside, closed the curtain. One cop turned to the cop and said, it's John Lennon. 
at about 22 minutes after 11, while they were still working on him, the hospital plays music. The song that was being played was All My Loving. About five minutes after that, there was a scream, a woman's voice. I was told, I did not see who was screaming, I was told it was Lyoko Ono. Oh no, no, oh no, no. It continued for about two or three minutes, and then there was silence. John Lennon was brought to the emergency room at the Roosevelt site, St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital, this evening, shortly before 11 p.m. He was dead on arrival. On the way home from the recording studios on that Monday night, John Lennon was shot and killed outside his New York apartment. Or outside his Manhattan apartment building, he died at Roosevelt Hospital. Police have a suspect in custody. Police say Lennon left a taxi cab outside the Dakota apartment building, walked through the large exterior gates of the building, and was shot three times in the back before he got inside. He was taken to Roosevelt Hospital, where doctors apparently worked to save him. One worker said there was blood all over. An eyewitness described the scene. So there's blood all over his stomach also, but he's bleeding out of his mouth. I heard Yoko screaming moments later. So they, they, they stepped out of the limousine, and they went inside the gate there, and, was, and then all of a sudden they heard five, six shots, and that was it. Four cops pulled John Lennon out and put him into the back of a police car, and his mouth he was bleeding from his mouth, and he, he, it was a terrible sight. Uh, he was shot by an unknown at this time, white male, who was in custody at this time. A gun is recovered. And uh, Mr. Lennon was brought to Roosevelt Hospital by one of our RMP cars. Again, police say they have a suspect in custody. Police describe the man as a local screwball. What we want to do right now is go to Lynn Scher, who is outside Roosevelt Hospital. Lynn, uh, just bring us up to date. Would you, uh, what happened? How did it happen? Under what circumstances did John Lennon die? Apparently, Ted, it happened around 10 o'clock this evening. John Lennon and his wife, Yoko Ono, I'm told we're returning from a recording session or somewhere else in a limousine, got out of a limousine to their apartment at the Dakota, where they were shot by a man who has been described, as you have said, by the police as deranged or a kook or something like that. Immediately, John Lennon was brought right here to Roosevelt Hospital. This is only about 13 blocks away from his apartment, so it was not, didn't take too long to get him here. According to Dr. Stephen Lynn, who's the director of emergency room services here, he just gave us a briefing. He said that Lennon was brought here this evening shortly before 11 p.m. He was dead on arrival. There were extensive uh, resuscitation efforts that were made, but none of them did any good. There were transfusions that were attempted. None of them were able to save his life. He apparently had multiple wounds in his chest. The doctor said there were seven wounds, but he could not tell exactly how many bullet shots that meant. He knew that it was a gun, but he couldn't say what kind of gun, nor could he say how close the shots had been fired, nor whether they were from the front or from the rear. Uh, he said there were signs of injuries of the major blood vessel in his chest, and that is clearly what he died from. Also, the doctor said that apparently Lennon was dead at the moment of the first shot. He could tell that by the size of the injuries. Once again, they tried everything that, that they could to revive him, and there was absolutely nothing they could do. And once again, the suspect is in custody. Yoko Ono was here with John Lennon when he was brought in. She was at his side. And the hospital has been pretty much surrounded with fans and other onlookers since the event happened. Police were concerned about hospital security. 
fearing a crowd might build, they decided to move Lennon's body quickly. A mortuary wagon was backed into a loading dock and the door shut as Lennon's body was loaded. Then, with a police escort in place, John Lennon's body was taken away. The body was brought to Bellevue Hospital where the medical examiner has an office. A full forensic autopsy was scheduled. Lynn, what happened at the scene? Were there any eyewitnesses uh, who described what happened? Yeah, Ted, apparently there were a number of eyewitnesses, and the police got everybody together rather quickly. They are all at the precinct right now. We haven't been over there yet. I assume that's where we're headed next. All right, Lynn Sure, thank you very much indeed. That then, the latest on John Lennon, shot and killed this evening at the age of 40. He leaves behind his widow, Yoko Ono, and a small child. Lennon was reportedly uh, shot and killed and died on his, uh, at his apartment on Manhattan's west side. Uh, his wife Yoko was with him, and police now have one person in custody. Witnesses said that the person was crouching in the doorway of the building. Police also say that he probably had some mental problems. Roseanne, it's just unbelievable. I... Lennon was shot up in front of the Dakota as he's walking into the Dakota, but as you folks had mentioned a little while ago, by some young man, we don't know much about him, some problem uh, or whatever. We just came from a briefing uh, with the head of the emergency department here, Dr. Lynn. He said that Lennon was shot or had maybe seven wounds to his chest and stomach and that he was dead certainly when he arrived here at the hospital. There were intense efforts to revive him, transfusion, resuscitation. It did not work. His wife, uh, Yoko, Enin, uh, Yoko Ono, came in uh, with John to the hospital. A doctor was asked... Uh, what did she say when he told her that John Lennon was dead? Said she was quite distraught and can't believe it. And Roseanne, that's about all I can say. I can't believe it. Reporting live from Roosevelt Hospital, this is Peter Bennett. Dead at 40. He was acknowledged by many to be the leader of the Beatles, a group that's said to have led a generation of young people around the world. tough industrial town of Liverpool, England. He met up with George Harrison in 1958, Paul McCartney in 1959, Ringo Starr a few years later, and the rest is history. The Beatles' sound was unique and captured the public's imagination. The group would sell more number one records in the 60s than any other. In the 70s, Lennon performed as a solo artist with more success. Ironically, Lennon's death came at a time when he was making a comeback. He had just recorded his first record in five years. Kavanaugh will let it run down for one final attempt. He'll let the seconds tick off to give Miami no opportunity whatsoever. Timeout is called. Three seconds remaining. John Smith is on the line. And I don't care what's on the line, Howard. You have got to say what we know in the booth. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival hard to go back to the game after that news flash which in duty found we had to take Frank indeed it is
From the BBC Radio Newsroom, this is Christopher Slade with News Briefing for Tuesday the 9th of December. The former Beatle, John Lennon, has been shot and killed in New York. News of his death reached us soon after half-past four this morning. Just a few minutes after the news was out, the crowd began to form here in front of the Dakota. At first, everyone stood around. No one said anything. People just milling about, and the crowd grew. For a long time, the crowd just stood silently by. By 2 a.m., there were about four or 500 people outside the Dakota. Very sad thing that happened, and I hope the people will realize that uh, there's a lot of love that was felt for John Lennon. After a long time of silence, the crowd began to sing. First John's song about Give Peace a Chance. Three of the people survived. Of John Lennon's murder, Paul McCartney says, I can't take it in at the moment. Ringo Starr says nothing, but a spokesman for him says he's extremely shocked and doesn't want to say any more. We were in the Bahamas at the time, and uh, my stepdaughter, Francesca, called her father's daughter, and she said, oh, Some kind of news about uh, John. What is it? Like the shooting and things like that. Well, you know, we don't know what it is. You know, I didn't really. I never ever went to, like, good night. And then they called back, you know, and they said, yeah, he's uh, actually even blown away. So we sat around and just devastated, actually. I mean, I was just down. And so uh, 5 o'clock in the morning, I ordered a plane and flew to New York just to see if there was anything, you know, you can do, but you can't, but you just, you know... When you get to that position or uh, situation, you know, you just do something. And that's what Barbara and I did, because you couldn't have a holiday after that, you know. Because we didn't feel in the mood anymore. So, it wasn't the best day in our life. George Harrison also says nothing, but is said to be deeply upset and also said to have canceled a recording session that was on his schedule for today. Drummer Ringo Starr and his girlfriend Barbara Bach flew to New York and went to see John's widow Yoko Ono. George Harrison is also flying into New York. Paul McCartney, who's in London, said that John's a great guy, he's going to be missed, but will he be remembered for what he did for art, music, and world peace? This is John Lawrence in London. Another of John Lennon's former partners, Paul McCartney, spent the day at an Oxford Street studio saying, work is the best tonic. Police were standing by, along with reporters, as McCartney finished. What was your reaction to the death of John Lennon? Uh, I was very shocked, you know. It's terrible news. What were you recording today? Um, I was just listening to some stuff, you know. I just didn't want to sit at home. Why? Well, I didn't feel like it. What time did you hear the news? This morning sometime. Very early? Yeah. Go on now, yeah? A drag, isn't it? The survivor of the most successful songwriting team in history also said John will be remembered for his unique contribution to art, music, and world peace. Another former Beatle, George Harrison, was said to be in a state of shock at his secluded mansion in the English countryside. Yeah, I was in bed at the time in England, and uh, I don't know, the call came through sometime in the morning, four or five in the morning. I didn't take the call. Um, Olivia took the call and she said, John's been shot. And I thought, oh, how bad is it? You know, I just thought, 
maybe a flesh wound or something like that. But so they said, no, that's it, he's dead. So I didn't know, I just went back to sleep, actually. I just, uh, maybe it's just a way of um, getting away from it. I just went to sleep and, uh, and then waited to see, you know, what it said the next morning. And he was still dead the next morning, unfortunately. The repercussions of those shots echoed louder and more powerfully than anyone could have imagined. The response was overwhelming and worldwide. This composer-performer's life had touched so many that the world stood still for a day. In London, as in record stores all over Europe, copies of Lennon's latest recording were in heavy demand. Fans said they wanted a last memento to add to their collections of the rebellious, angry young musician of the 60s. All over the world today, newspapers and radio and television programs gave special, sustained coverage to Lenin's death. From Madrid to Moscow, the murder was condemned, and with it, by implication, American society. London's new standard editorialized, Lenin's meaningless murder is increasingly typical of New York and the United States in general, where the freedom to carry guns has brought forth monsters. In TV studios as well as the streets, individuals were angry and bitter. His music will live forever, and because of this stupid piece of refuse that's done this to him, who might get away with it because that's the way the law is. I mean, because I would be very adamant this man must be killed for me. It's America's to blame. He should have got out of America a long time ago. It's a society like America that can, these things can happen. Very sure. I think it's disgusting it could only happen in America, couldn't it? You should have said it, yeah. That's all I can say. The city that gave birth to the Beatles was in shock and mourning today. Just yesterday, radio listeners all over Britain heard John Lennon say in an interview, while there's life, there's hope. John Lawrence, ABC News, London. There has been a reaction all over the world to the shooting of John Lennon. In London, several newspapers told the story with an underlying attack on New York City and the United States in general, implying that we live in a gun-happy society in this country and that New York is a crime capital. That brought this reaction from Mayor Koch. Was the assailant from New York? He was from Honolulu. What shall we do? Put up a fence and keep people out who don't uh, uh, live and work in the city of New York or who aren't born here? That's ridiculous. And you know there'll always be uh, an attempt uh, to uh, uh, look for a scapegoat, uh, including a city. But uh, when you have uh, a deranged, an alleged deranged person, that's what the media say, uh, he uh, is, uh, they've interviewed him, or uh, as far as I know. Uh, how do you stop that? How do you stop a uh, maniac? Uh, can you have a cop uh, in front of every house? The answer is obviously uh, not. In this nation, President-elect Reagan, who called Lenin's death a great tragedy, said in New York today, we have to find a way to stop such violence in the streets. Reagan said he still does not believe gun control is the answer. Well, I said, what can anyone say? It's a great tragedy and it's just another evidence of that we have to try and stop happening in this world. Would you stop that with handgun legislation, Governor? I've never believed that. I believe in the kind of handgun legislation we have in California. Someone commits a crime and carries a gun when he's doing it, add five to 15 years to the prison sentence. Reagan spent an hour inside with the Cardinal, saying they talked about everything, the world at large. Pressed further on the Lennon affair and his rejection of tougher gun control, Reagan was asked if there is any solution to such killings. Well, if there is, it should be done. But 
I think the whole overall picture of violence in our streets has got to be treated with, and we have to find an answer. The president-elect returned to the Waldorf for a private luncheon meeting with his newlywed son. He then conferred for about an hour with three black leaders. President Carter said he was saddened by Lenin's death and distressed by the senseless manner of it. In his statement, the president said Lenin's greatest success came when the Beatles, in his words, conquered America. My memories of that night came the next morning, December 9th, when I found out. Shocked by the unbelievable tragedy that unfolded, my friend Mike and I traveled to New York City from New Jersey that evening and placed roses in the gates of the Dakota building. It was a very sad night. Tuesday morning, December 9th in New York. Radio stations around the city were playing the songs of Lennon and the Beatles. People are calling from not only New York and New Jersey and Connecticut, but all over the country and uh, sharing their feelings with us. And people especially want to hear um, not only Lennon's music, but the Beatles and also other artists who would kind of connect with the tragedy that transpired last night. It's, it's an incredible, overwhelming uh, reaction we're getting from his, his fans. Today, the vigil continued outside the Dakota, with local mourners joined by former Beatle Ringo Starr, who visited Yoko Ono at the Lennon's apartment. There are bitter and poignant ironies to this act of violence. Last year, Lennon and his wife Yoko Ono donated $1,000 to the New York City police for the purchase of bulletproof vests to show, they said, their genuine concern for the lives of our police officers in New York City. And just last week, Lennon told a BBC radio interviewer that he particularly liked living in New York City right now because he felt so much at ease here. I can go right out this door now and go in a restaurant. Do you want to know how great that is? Mm. Or go to the movies? I mean, people will come up and ask for autographs or say hi, but they won't bug you, you know? Lynn Scher, ABC News, New York. Devoted fans of John Lennon still gather at the site where the former Beatles star was murdered Monday night. Inside the Dakota apartments, Lennon's widow, Yoko Ono, remains in seclusion with the couple's five-year-old son. Visiting overnight was Lennon's 17-year-old son, Julian, who flew in from London. When did you find out that uh, your dad had been shot? Um, about seven hours after. Uh, I came downstairs in the morning and uh, all the blinds were closed and uh, mum was in London and there was a lot of letters on the sideboard for me and I was sort of, oh, what's all this, you know? And my stepdad came through and I said, what's going on? Uh, so I went to pick up the letters and he said, no, leave them there, come in here, I want a word with you. And um, I sat down and I, I knew there was something wrong and I didn't know what. And he said, uh, yeah, prepare yourself and I said, well, what could have happened? He said, uh, your father's been shot dead. And I, I was total um, blank. Uh, I said, are you sure he's dead? He said, yes. Yeah. And I just broke down. I couldn't do anything. Yeah. But I pulled myself together pretty quick because only the fact that there were so many other people who were a lot closer to him than I was, really, on a friendship basis, and knew him a lot longer than I did. And uh, I just felt, well, I've got to be strong, because if I'm living with my mother, and I know Yoko pretty well, uh, if I'm strong, then I'll be able to cope with, you know, 
the distress that's going to hit them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you then flew to New York. Yeah. Uh, how was Yoko then? Totally uh, wiped out. Tears, everything. Well, I mean, it's expected, but um, I tried calming her down as much as I could, and we got to a stage where we were quite calm. But there was always something, you know, just a, any little thing that would just click and uh, she'd back into tears, and it was just hard work trying to keep calm all the time. Lemon's body was today removed from the New York City Medical Examiner's Office at Bellevue. Ironically, it is at Bellevue where Lennon's accused killer is being held for psychiatric evaluation. Reports on whether she is competent to stand trial will be delivered to the court on January the 6th. December 10th. At the Dakota Apartments where Lennon was shot, the mourning continues. His fans showing their grief, their sympathy for his widow and son. Yoko Ono sent word down to the mourners here outside the Dakota, asking that the singing cease, that the people disperse, so that she and the rest of the people in the Dakota can get some sleep. But within hours, the mourners returned. The singing returned, and during the day, this afternoon, before the rain began, a crowd of as many as 2,000 people came out here. They continued singing Beatles ballads, many of them just looking at the building, most of them saying they just want to try to feel close to John Lennon, a man whom they say touched their lives. And as you can see, despite the rain, the morning continues here outside the Dakota. The gathering at the Dakota, one of many vigils around the country. Hundreds of miles from the site of John Lennon's murder, 35,000 mourners stood in the cold last night to pay tribute to Lennon. They braved Toronto's snow and high winds to keep his spirit alive through the song All You Need Is Love. John Lennon's music was also played in Jackson, Mississippi today as volunteers flocked to the city's blood center to give donations in his memory. The blood drive was set up by fans of John Lennon. Yoko Ono released a statement tonight. She says that she told their five-year-old son, Sean, what happened and took him to the spot where John lay after he was shot. Sean wanted to know why the person who shot his father liked him. She explained that he probably was confused. Yoko says that Sean cried. And he also said, well, now daddy is part of God. She asked grieving fans not to blame New York for her husband's murder. Yoko said John loved New York, and he'd be the first to say it wasn't New York's fault. There can be one crank anywhere. Lennon's wife, Yoko Ono, said in a statement this afternoon there will be no funeral service for her husband. Instead, she will set a time later this week for all his friends and fans to pray for his soul. We will invite you to participate from wherever you are at the time, said Yoko Ono, adding John loved and prayed for the human race. Please pray the same for him. In the statement Yoko Ono released tonight, she invites John Lennon fans to take part in a 10-minute silent vigil wherever you are at 2 o'clock Sunday afternoon. There will be no funeral. Meantime, John Lennon's 17-year-old son, Julian, is here tonight. Also tonight, Lennon fans maintain their constant vigil outside the Westside apartment building where he lived and died. This afternoon, Lennon's body was taken from the city medical examiner's office to an east side funeral home. About 4.20, it was moved again to a crematorium in Hartsdale in Westchester County. There it was cremated. It's not known what was done with the ashes. 
Late tonight, Lenin's attorney has filed his will here. It lists an estate of at least $30 million and names Yoko Ono as executor. The exact amount of the estate is not known. Estimates range as high as $235 million, with half going to Lenin's widow, half to a trust fund. His holdings include five apartments at the Dakota, a 1,600-acre cattle farm in the Catskills, beachfront estates in Cold Springs Harbor, Long Island, Palm Beach, Florida, and a 62-foot yacht, plus a 25% interest in Apple Records, the staggering fortune of a man who wanted to be and was a working-class hero. Paul McCartney now has two full-time bodyguards hired moments after John Lennon's killing at the cost of $230 a day. McCartney insists, however, it's not for protection from a gunman, but from the press, not the assassins. Thursday, December the 11th. Yoko Ono and the Lennon son is still in the building, but we do understand that uh, Yoko Ono did come back here last night, saw this entire crowd, spent the night here, and uh, perhaps that had something to do with her decision today to make as respectful as this crowd has been. But nevertheless, it does take on, as you hear the music and the chanting going on back there, some aspects of the bazaar. And perhaps that had something to do with her decision to make sure that the funeral for John Lennon will be absolutely private. Sunday, December 14th. A day of worldwide mourning as the 10 minutes of silence for John Lennon's soul is scheduled in New York Central Park at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and in London and Liverpool at 7 p.m. John Lennon, singer, songwriter, leader of a musical group that led a generation. Earlier this week, he was killed. Today, New York and the world mourn. Thousands of people are gathering in Central Park to mark Lennon's death in the manner requested by the widow, Yoko Ono with 10 minutes of silent prayer. That is scheduled for 2 this afternoon, New York time. To date, the largest gathering in Central Park was in September, 400,000 showing up for the Elton John concert. Some previous estimates put today's expected showing at half a million, but at this point it doesn't seem that the crowd will be that large. The focus for New York's tribute to the former Beatle is the park's band shell, where music by John Lennon and the Beatles and classical pieces are being played. And situated there among our reporters is Ernie Anastas. Roger, we are here, Central Park. We are not very far from the van shell, as you can see. The van shell is decorated for Christmas. And you can see a large wreath in the center of the shell. And on each side, there are two large bouquets of flowers. And there's a picture, of course, of, of John Lennon wearing the New York City T-shirt. New York City has turned out for him today. There are about 125,000 people that have gathered here. I've had an opportunity to go out and chat with a lot of the folks. Some have come here from last night, others early this morning. And I must tell you that it's a, it's a strange feeling. Many of us who uh, at one time stood in line for a Beatles movie or for a concert are here today, and a lot of us with children, and looking at each other and thinking and remembering and trying to feel something. I looked in the eyes of uh, people who were in their 30s, and I just said, why are you here? A very simple, simple response. I said, you know. I think that sums a lot of it up. 
Yoko Ono had, had asked for no tributes. She said she didn't want that. What she wanted was a silent prayer, a 10-minute silent prayer to pray for the soul of John Lennon. Mayor Koch has put this together. There is no ceremony planned for today. Uh, there will be no speakers. There are no speeches here. What we're listening to is amplified, recorded music. And beginning at 2 o'clock, we will have the silent prayer. Uh, as far as we understand, Yoko Ono will not participate in any of the public tributes today. She remains in seclusion. She is at her west side apartment. She is there with five-year-old son, Sean. And now we will have 10 minutes of silent prayer to pray as Yoko Ono has asked for John Lennon's soul. We have about 40 seconds before we begin our 10-minute vigil. We ask everyone's cooperation with respect to our great friend, John Lennon, who I'm sure is with you all today. We ask for complete silence for this 10 minutes. Please get comfortable. Those who are sitting or standing, get into a comfortable position. Please turn off all radios. Please stop any sale or vending of any merchandise or any foods which may be out amongst you. Meditate in your quiet way. Stand still. And please give your utmost respect for these solemn last ten minutes. We begin our vigil now, and at the conclusion, to terminate our vigil, we will begin our recorded John Lennon music. We start now. May we all pray. Thank you.
around the world. John Lennon's fans bowed their heads in silence today. Yes, they mourned his death in silence and in song. Thousands in New York Central Park, many thousands more across the nation and the world, marking a 10-minute silent vigil at 2 o'clock local time, wherever the Lennon fans happen to be. The silence falling also in Chicago, Philadelphia, Miami, Memphis, Detroit, and other cities. A report now on the Central Park observance from John Hammond. The silence was almost total here in Central Park this afternoon, except for the sound of the helicopters circling above. Every human being, maybe as many as 200,000 who had gathered here to pay silent tribute to John Lennon, did exactly that. There was not even the sound of a dog barking or a baby crying which frankly was in evidence just before the tribute began. Then at two o'clock, the recorded music which had filled Central Park was shut off and the silent vigil began. silent vigil, the prayers for John Lennon's soul, as requested by his widow Yoko Ono, ended after 10 minutes, as did simultaneous tributes around the world. I talked with some of those gathered about their thoughts during the silent period. A little bit of my life died with him today. I um, prayed for his soul, as Yoko asked. He believed in peace, you know, and what can I say? Just look around you, it tells it all. I was also more curious about little ones really knowing who John Lennon was. How much of his impact from the 60s went back like to eight-year-olds and, you know, nine-year-olds, if, if they still knew who he was. At the silent period, I thought if he were here, he'd be happy, you know. In Central Park, John Habrick, News 4 Manhattan. This is Reggie Harris at the Dakota, where a crowd of several thousand stood quietly even before the vigil began. And as the 10 minutes of silence continued, only the beating of helicopters could be heard. One person later put it like this, nothing moved but the traffic lights. When the silence was over, thousands from the band shell joined those here in the street, just standing, apparently hoping for a glimpse of Yoko Ono. And as they waited, some showing the peace sign, others the flag, they talked of what John Lennon's life meant and what his death means to them. I was 13 when the Beatles first came, and they kind of represented the beginning of my adolescence. And, you know, I've been trying hard to put off ending it. I feel like this is sort of an end to it. I remember when uh, Kennedy was shot, John Kennedy, and I was young then, I didn't understand it, you know. But in my lifetime, this man has offered me more than any president that, you know, that I've come across in my lifetime. Yeah. It's also time for us to think how fortunate that we were that we lived in a time when he was here and we could share what he brought to the world and that in itself something to be thankful for. The crowd continued to stay even through a brief snowfall until about a quarter to five when the small core that was still here suddenly broke and left. And as they walked away, many could be heard again saying, the dream is over. I'm Reggie Harris, News 4 Manhattan.
In John Lennon's native Liverpool, England, more than 20,000 mourners gathered for a memorial concert coming from all over Britain and from other West European countries. They flooded into a square in the heart of Liverpool, many of them too young to remember the Beatles when they shot to fame in the early 60s. The Liverpool concert ended with a silent 10-minute candlelight vigil as well. Yoko gave a statement that read, Some people are saying that this is the end of an era, but what we said before still stands. The 80s will be a beautiful decade. John loved and prayed for the human race. Please tell people to pray the same for him. Please remember that he had deep faith and love of life, and that though he has now joined the greater force, he is still with us. I still believe in love, peace. I still believe in positive thinking. While there's life, there's hope. Because I always consider my work one piece. And I consider that my work won't be finished until I'm dead and buried. And I hope that's a long, long time. <laughs>